Hello everybody, this is Andre and I'm here with Michael and on today's episode titled Die Hard to Self, uh, we'll be discussing Jesus dressing uh, Jewish tradition, Jesus feeding 4,000, and lastly Jesus speaking on his death and resurrection, um, among many other things. I hope you guys enjoy the discussion. We have got to get out of this habit, man. It is 1017. It is about to be my bedtime, which is 1030. So we need to fix this up a little bit. Dude, it's going to be a lot better for you next semester because I'll be an hour ahead. So when it's like 10 o'clock for me, then it'll actually be 9 o'clock for you. So, you know, when you're when you're uh, chilling in, in the, um, what is it, central time zone and, and I move over to the eastern time zone. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be better for you. You'll save an hour. That's true. I will say I did sleep until 7 today. Usually I get up a bit earlier than that. But by 10, 10, 15, 10, 30 rolls around, I'm ready to sit down and and lay down and go to bed. So we got to switch this up, which I guess means also that if we're trying to get done, we should not banter for a long time and we should just jump into Mark 7. Oh, for sure, for sure. Let's let's jump in. And um, you want to give us a a quick overview of this chapter and then uh, we'll give some points on... uh, the first few uh, sections and then move into chapter eight where we have a few more things to discuss. Yeah. So in chapter seven, we're going to see Jesus challenge the Pharisees on their traditions and Jewish custom. Then we're going to see Jesus talk about uh, defiling uh, oneself and we're going to see a Gentile woman's faith. So as we get into chapter seven, though, we first see that the Pharisees gather and some of the scribes and they see that that the disciples ate with hands that were defiled. And so this is what's really interesting is that starting in verse 3, you'll see some parentheses. And so the Pharisees and all the Jews, they Mark begins to explain this Jewish custom. It's very odd that Mark takes time to explain a Jewish custom if he isn't writing to a non-Jewish audience. So it's, if it, it's very likely here that he is uh, writing to a Roman audience. And so, Andre, just as we get into this, what do you see Jesus do in response to the Pharisees' uh, rebuke or their their criticism you know he he like calls them out which you know one thing that I've, i found to be really interesting um just because you know the pharisees aren't the first people who have uh questioned or doubted or you know um had you know second thoughts or whatever uh reservations about jesus miracles or uh, the work he was doing or things along those lines even the disciples we've seen have misunderstood uh, parables, um, you know, they've they've uh, incorrectly identified who Jesus is. Um, they, you know, we we saw just last week how you know when uh, Jesus was walking on on water, um, they were scared and, and misidentified him there as well. And so, what's really interesting to me is, and what I what I see here is that you know the Pharisees are they're questioning him in a very um, in a very different way, which is that more so than just like having doubts they're they're trying to like trap him and it, it's more of like a, a hateful way um you can tell that you know jesus sees that their hearts are hardened um and he you know he calls them out for basically being fake in that um and, w- and with their words uh they're trying to um show that they're like super religious but with their actual actions um they're not actually like following you know, God's word, they're not actually, um, doing the right things to, you know, demonstrate faith, which we've seen has been of utmost importance throughout all the chapters we've gone through so far. 
Yeah, I don't remember what what uh, psalm it's in. It's definitely in the first like third of the psalms. But it, uh, there's a recount of like Israel's life and talks about how they flattered God with their lips, but not with their hearts. And this this kind of reiterated that to me because Jesus isn't saying that Jesus isn't denying that they broke Jewish custom. He's just saying the customs are of men. And so I think that he I think his quoting of Isaiah is strong and powerful yet it's also necessary and i think that one thing you see jesus do throughout the gospels whether he's citing isaiah or other scripture to say hey that's this is me or he's citing it to uh rebuke or to point forward to something else i think he uh you just see that the messiah just as we should has a just an inherent knowledge of the scripture he knows the bible and of course he is god almighty so he would uh he wrote it in a sense and so in a sense, the entire Bible is a red-letter Bible, not just these specific words that Jesus said in the Gospels, because the Spirit of Christ has breathed out the entire Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. But it is interesting that he says in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God, you just hold to tradition. And so you're rejecting that. And then he points to Moses. So do you know what's going on here with the Jewish custom about a man giving money to the temple? Yeah, so I think this part was was uh, really interesting because he actually gives like a, a specific example of you know where they're um, falling short here, and um, he's talking about you know honoring your mother and father as compared to um, where it says um, where where he says if a man tells his father or his mother whatever you would have gained for me is Corbin, and it says that um, and then in parentheses we see again that is given to God. Um, so I don't. I think that this is this is really interesting, especially how um, he's addressing like specific traditions and and how ultimately they're falling short of um, what what like they're actually supposed to do in you know their um, how they're honoring God in this example, like through um, giving to the temple. Yeah, it's super interesting because in his example, the custom was just that the man would vow money. He says instead of putting this towards caring for my aged parents. I'm just going to give it to the temple. And Jewish custom said that this would relieve the man of obligation to uh, serve his parents that are aged and cannot take care of themselves. And so he's saying, you have established a custom that goes against the commandments because then this person does not have to honor his parents because he can get out of that obligation by just giving money to God. And he's saying, you don't understand that the way to honor God in this scenario is to honor father and mother. And I think that's, I think that's really interesting. And this also like reminds me of, of other times that we've seen Jesus' interactions um, with the Pharisees. Um, you know, specifically, what comes to mind is is uh, when Jesus addressed the Sabbath, and you know, he he asked them like, you know, you know, why why would I not like heal this person? You know, you're you're misconstruing what the Sabbath means and using it to to basically like. Um, question like who Jesus is but you know you're you're not like you're not following it like the same way we saw that you know a verse later um, they were like questioning and they were like attacking Jesus and, and plotting against him yeah for sure uh, do you want to move on to the to the next section yeah yeah man I think that you know this past section it flows really well just because um, in this section it's talking about what defiles um, a person and there's many examples given but it kind of all um, we see it all like, come to a close um, where Jesus says um, that, you know it's it's okay to eat uh, you know any type of food and he's talking about how like what you put into your body 
um, isn't what defiles you. And he's specifically talking about food here. And, you know, that could be seen a little bit as uh, that was like the custom of the time. It was um, in the law of the Old Testament. And, you know, Jesus is saying like, like there's a new way, I'm the new way. And it, it kind of, you know, flows really well from uh, thinking of traditions. Can you do me a favor real quick? What's up? Can you read verse 16 for us on the mic? Dude, wait, verse 16. Wait, hold on, hold on. All right, dude, I don't know why. I don't like, I don't even see a verse 16. <laughs> That's because it's not there. Didn't notice that until now. (laughs) So if you read a King James version of the Bible, you will have a verse 16 more than likely. But in many modern translations or most modern translations, verse 16 is removed because translators now say in most of the earliest manuscripts that we have, verse 16 is not present, which says something like, let those with ears... Uh, if anyone has ears, let him hear, which is the KJV, the King James. But uh, apparently in a lot of early manuscripts, those words are not there. So what is verse 16 in other Bibles is simply removed in the ESV and other other translations. So you will skip directly from verse 15 to 17. Interesting. <laughs> D- didn't even notice that upon first reading. Anyway, so just having a little fun. But yeah, so this passage is really interesting because he's just saying you aren't primarily cleansed or you aren't primarily defiled by rituals. So you, if you don't participate in rituals, that's not what that's not what's defiling you. The primarily the primary way you're defiled is by a lack of morality, a lack of um, understanding the commandments of God as he intended, not just the customs of men. And then so that's why he says that uh, the things that come out of a person are what uh, defile him. And what comes out? Verse 21, uh, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness. And so these are a lot of the similar things that Paul references in 1 Corinthians 6, maybe around verse 10 and 11. I'm not sure about that. But this is what stops someone from inheriting the kingdom of God. It's these it's these things that come from within. And they, these moral things, not ritualistic things, but moral things, are what can defile somebody. And so this kind of continues the theme from before where he's talking against custom and ritual and pointing forward to a morality that is deeper than that. Kind of like in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not just concerned about your adultery. He's concerned about your lustful intent. He's not just concerned with your murder. He's concerned with your anger. Yeah, for sure, man. And then that brings us to the faith of the woman. And I'm not even going to attempt to say... um, uh, you know where where she's from, but oh come on, Syro Syro Phoenician. Let's go, just like Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. Let's hear it, Syro Phoenician. I'll try. In, <laughs> I'll try in a bit, but yeah, let's talk about the woman's faith. <laughs> so let's uh, let's continue on. <laughs> so this is interesting. The impure theme is continued. So we just talked about defiling someone impurity. Now this continues because who is this woman? She's a Gentile, and so she would have been considered an outsider by many in the in the Jewish land. And so this impure theme continues. So as we get into this, this is a woman who has a little daughter with an unclean spirit. We're in verse 25. She falls down at his feet. She's a Gentile Syrophoenician by birth, and she begs Jesus to cast the demon out. So what's odd about this story? What what do you think we should see here? 
Well, you know, first uh, I just wanted to point out, you know, we see a common theme again of of a demon and Jesus healing someone who is demon possessed. Uh, we also see that she falls to her knees, uh, which that to me indicates, you know, um, she has utmost faith, just as we see as, you know, what this section is titled. Uh, we see her faith in that, you know, she believes that Jesus truly can hear, heal her daughter. But one thing that I did find kind of interesting, maybe a little odd, um, was when Jesus addresses her and says uh, to let the children first be fed. Her response is, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat at the children's crumbs. Um, and to this, Jesus responds, um, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. I found this to be a little interesting, maybe a little odd. Um, you know, I don't don't uh, truly fully understand um, what she meant by her statement that was right there in the middle, uh, sandwiched between uh, Jesus's two <laughs> two comments. But um, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think it's it's very likely that the that his quote to her in verse twenty seven, "Let the children be fed first and such," is a proverb of the day. So it's probably not as uncommon or weird as it sounds to us. Um, it's also it also clarifies that who did Jesus first come for? First and foremost, we have to think of the Old Testament, Israel. So Matthew fifteen twenty four, the mission was first to Israel and then to the rest. So this reminds us of Romans 1, 16, where Paul says, I am, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or to the, to the non-Jew, to the Gentile. And so he's saying that, he first came for Israel, but it's possible that Jesus is testing her because the woman almost re- responds in a way that could have been interpreted uh, in a humorous way because we're not there, but she goes along with it and still pleads for mercy. So this is what's really interesting, though, is I'll let James Edwards speak because he's much more intelligent than the both of us. Uh, I've mentioned his commentary before, but he says it's not that Jesus is calling her a dog. He says um, it, it would not make sense for Jesus to speak against impurity and custom and then to call her a dog because she's not a Jew, first. Second, the word dog here is actually, he says, not the custom word or the usual word for a street dog, but a different word, meaning a small dog that would be kept as a pet. And third, the word dog could just be used as a distinction because who did Israel think of themselves as? The children of God. And so in this sense, dog could be a distinction between these children and the outsiders. But Jesus, again, uh, loves her faith and she pleads for mercy. And we see the authority of Jesus's words as he casts out uh, the demon. I don't know if that clarified anything, but James Edwards certainly did some clarifying for me. Yeah, for sure, man. And, you know, just, you know, before we move on to the next section, you know, the last thing to add here. Um, at least in my eyes, is uh, we see the, um, you know, the distinction between the dog or however you want to think of it and then children. And we see, you know, Jesus has, seems like a, a special relationship. We'll, we'll continue to see this, this uh, theme of uh, Jesus and how he speaks of children. And then it's really, I think, um, telling to think of, you know, how our relationship with God as being our father and, you know, how we see how Jesus views children and how we are, you know, children of God and, and how that special relationship is, is there. I think that's, you know, really important to, to focus on, especially as we move forward and, and keep seeing more examples of, of children and all that. Um, but lastly, in this chapter, we see Jesus healing a deaf man. So you want to touch on that before we move on to chapter eight? Yeah. So this is, I kind of read some differing things in commentaries, which was a little weird, but so essentially they have a man, Jesus brings him aside privately. This is a man who's deaf and has a speech impediment according to verse 32. And so Jesus looks up to heaven and he sighs and he says, uh, Ephatha 
or Ethaphtha, which is uh, be open. This is the this is the man's original language, Aramaic, which is uh, there are some Aramaic words preserved in the Gospels, and so this this is what is going on here. And I read some different interpretations, but Jesus puts his fingers into an ear into his ears, which could imitate deafness. Then he spits and he touches the tongue, which could imitate the speech impediment that the man has, and he heals him. So the significant part. Uh, the significant part here is just that he has charged him, uh, you know, don't tell anyone. And again, we see this messianic secret theme come up once again because they go out and tell people. And so it's not that this is a turning point in the gospel. That's where we get to in Mark chapter 8 with the two-part healing. But in, in Mark chapter 7, we're going to see, we just see that uh, they're astonished at what he has done. And it makes sense that they're disobedient almost in a way. Like, yes, we want to be obedient to Jesus, but how can you witness this and not be shocked? And then actually, I don't know if I misspoke earlier, but at the end of chapter eight, we see like a turning point in the gospel or in Mark chapter eight, we see a turning point uh, with the two-part healing. Um, So it is very interesting though, uh, how he heals this man and what he does with the imitation. Um, And now we're into chapter eight where we begin with a story that basically seems like a repeat of the last one. And uh, Andre, why is this not a repeat of feeding the 5,000? Is it not just the same story? You know, it was really interesting to me when you first told me that, you know, a lot of people think that it's just like a, uh, you know, the same story repeated because I had remembered, you know, when I was looking through and preparing that, you know, Jesus like specifically addressed this as like two separate events. Um, I think it's in, verse three starting in verse three if you look there um uh you know we see that jesus actually you know he uh locates like how much bread how much fish uh are available um this seems like you know very familiar it seems like kind of like the same story so i could i could see um how you might think that um but then um after the people eat and you know they collect what's left over um Later on, we actually see that when Jesus recalls this event with uh, his disciples, you know, he specifically says like, oh, like how much, uh, how many baskets were left over the first time? And, you know, they, they respond to him in verse 19. Um, they said 12. And then he says, and how many baskets did you fill up um, when we fed the 4,000? And they said seven. So it's like specifically like two different events. Um, and then, you know, Jesus says, do you not yet understand? So maybe the people who think that do not yet understand. <laughs> That's really funny, actually. Yeah, I totally agree. We see in, in chapter six, they the people had been with him for one day. In this case, it's three, and he's impressed. He's compassionate towards them because they've been following him. And it's also clear that in verse nine here, it's 4,000 people, whereas in the other story, it was 5,000 men, which was probably 20,000 people, as we said. And... So yeah, I totally agree that it is it is certainly not the same story. But isn't it crazy? Let's just assume that this is chronological for a second. They say, how are we going to feed people here in this desolate place? And if we're just assuming this is chronological, they have just seen Jesus multiply the loaves to 20,000 people. And now they're basically in the same scenario again. And the disciples are like, well, we don't have enough bread. How are we going to feed these people? When they just saw it happen. So this has got to be emphasizing just how slow the disciples are as well because... How else would they not just think, "Oh, Jesus has done it before; he can do it again"? Yeah, they they just they're not they're not getting it; they're not understanding. But you know, it you know, we see Jesus multiply, and we see you know how amazed the people were the first time. Um, 
we see crowds following him again and you know he ended up you know he ended up doing it again and, and i guess uh maybe in a little bit we're about to see um maybe one of the disciples starts to get it but then maybe he just falls a little bit short so but before we get to that point uh we're going to see a little bit about the pharisees again um they question jesus for a second time this time they're demanding a sign um and jesus we see his frustration where he um you know questions why does this gen- generation seek a sign and he says truly i say to you no sign will be given to this generation and it just made me think and you know think about you know my um my own life and you know thinking of our like current generation and, and thinking like are we demanding signs from from jesus um now today uh, do we have like the same um perception of our relationship with christ or you know are we like the woman who has faith and like the other people who have had faith um who we see that um jesus's miracle power and like his work actually is able to you know uh, move through them and we see that you know we see that their faith is evident like who are who are we acting like how do we um in our day-to-day like are we the type of person who's just demanding uh, a sign of jesus or are we the person who has faith yeah it was very interesting for me to think of yeah i was actually going to say exactly the same thing uh that it kind of pushes again pushes back against the whole unbelieving thing about like well if i just had a sign from jesus well if you were just trying to test jesus and you went to him with a and you asked him for a sign hey i just need a sign that you're messiah then i'll believe well, this is exactly what they want. They want a sign from heaven. That's exactly what unbelievers might want today or we might want if we're being disobedient. And he's saying, this is not this is not faith. This is not how we operate here. And it's actually interesting how a parallel story in Matthew 16 tells it a little bit differently because he says an evil in 16.4 of, of Matthew's gospel, he says an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And what's the sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah was in the well for three days and then came up out of the earth. And so the sign of Jonah for Christ is that he will be, he will die and he will be crucified. He will be in the earth for three days and then resurrect from the dead. So no sign will be given except the resurrection. Either way, though, people coming for Jesus, coming to Jesus for a test, uh, just that so they might have a sign from heaven. Uh, this is not, this is not uh, welcoming in Jesus's eyes. And then he goes on to critique uh, the Pharisees and and uh, the people of Herod when he when he uh, gets on on the boat with the disciples and he says, "Beware of the leaven." and the leaven of Herod, the leaven of the Pharisees and leaven of Herod, which is interesting because the Pharisees of the Pharisees and those who followed Herod were not similar people whatsoever. And so one of the characteristics here has to just be that the leaven of those two is unbelief because those two were drastically different groups, um, even though it could be the teaching and it could be their hypocrisy as well, because we've seen both of those in Matthew and in Luke. For sure, man. And we've touched a little bit on this section and read a little bit on this section already, but one thing that I saw here is when he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, as you pointed out, that was interesting because, you know, we know Jesus to be and identify as the bread of life. And then he says here, beware of, of you know, leaven of Pharisees and Herod. Um, you know, he's saying that, you know, like that's how you go towards the complete opposite, which, you know, death. So um, they have more of like a sinful approach. They're questioning Jesus. Um, to focus on traditions um, and using it more in the sense of, you know, you know, towing this line of, of um, disbelief, having no faith, uh, not believing in Jesus, demanding uh, signs, all, all kinds of things, complete opposite of what Jesus is going for here. 
Yeah, and it's interesting how yeast works. So, I mean, we can talk about whether or not Jesus was talking about how yeast works, but you, when you're using, when you're trying to like prepare dough, you don't need a lot of yeast. And so it could be completely true that Jesus is also saying just a little bit, you only need a little bit of yeast for dough and a little bit of the Pharisees approach can be destructive. And so you think about in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul talks about rooting out the leaven from amongst you, leaven often represents sin and evil in the New Testament. And so he's saying only a little bit of this will destroy. And that that is very interesting. And it, it, their reaction is almost like a parable. There's like a veiled understanding they don't understand. And he's like, do you not understand? And so I think that's very interesting because it's it is like a mini parable and the response is just like that of a parable. Yeah, man, for sure. And then, like I said, a little bit of this uh, next section here, we touched on a little bit. So, you know, let's move into Jesus healing um, the blind man and his conversation with Peter and then also him foretelling his death and resurrection. And this section is, is very interesting. So I want to save some time to talk about this this year. Yeah, so we get into the, the blind man here and they wanted Jesus to touch him and he leads him out of the village and he spits on his eyes, but he sees tree like the the first part of the healing only works partially. He can see, but he sees walking trees practically. So, uh, well, if you're seeing walking trees, the vision's not very good, and there were no optometrists, so this isn't really going very well for this man. And so some say that this is like a halfway point in the gospel because it indicates that he's not cl- seeing clearly at first, kind of like Peter is not about to see clearly at first when he uh, he identifies Jesus correctly, which we're about to see, but then he ends up saying, oh, you don't need to die on a cross. This is uh, like nonsense. And then Jesus rebukes him as Satan. So this is suggesting too that revelation is a process, that, that you're not going to, that the person and work of Christ is revealed in a uh, process, uh, progressive manner like mark has been saying this whole time like we've talked about you cannot understand the son of god fully until you see him crucified on the cross and so this is a two-part healing and he ends up seeing everything clearly and this exemplifies the whole the whole theme of the gospel of mark that we've been discussing for sure and moving like straight into that before we touch on on conversation with peter one one thing that i found kind of interesting is when you just asked them who do the people say that i am it was it was interesting, like thinking back to the fact that you know Jesus sent them out to go, and you know He had given them the miracle power, the power to um, remove demons and such. And so Him asking, like, what do the people say that I that I am, or I mean, who do the people say that I am? It's kind of indicative to me of the fact that like He had sent them out, and they they had talked to different people, and you know, experienced all these different things. And I think it's like really cool how that like lines up there. Um, that now He's like getting kind of that feedback. Um, now that they're together again. I thought that was really interesting, but. Moving into Peter actually identifying uh, Jesus correctly as the Christ when he asked this of them, despite others saying John the Baptist or Elijah, as we had we had seen uh, those common answers uh, before, um, as well as one of the prophets. But we see Peter correctly identify um, Jesus as the Christ, which is which is good. But then when Jesus begins to talk about his actual death and resurrection um, to them. I think, you know, Peter potentially, you know, he's just, you know, he's just saying like, I would don't want to see, um, my Messiah die. Um, but you know, he's not seeing the full picture, which is yes, the death, but then also the resurrection. And then like, he doesn't know the reasoning behind it. Um, much as, as you had pointed out, you know, 
it's like he can kind of see, but he's seeing walking trees. So he doesn't really have the full picture, full understanding. Yeah. I think one thing that we'll, we never need to miss if we're going to, we're going to pull it out of the context a little bit and pull it into today is we need to be thinking that this is the most crucial question in world history for others and for ourselves. Who is Jesus? That is the defining question in world history for all peoples, even for unbelievers. The fact that this Jesus of Nazareth has reset the calendar uh, around his uh, incarnation, uh, the fact that Christianity is the dominate, dominant or the largest uh, claim, claimed world religion, and so forth— means that the most important question is who is Jesus of Nazareth and if the if you are wrong this could uh be eternally harming or harmful for sure and uh you want to be right so we this understanding who Jesus is is essential today just as it was for Peter and then yeah just as you said he misses the point because he begins to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and be crucified be killed and then he's going to rise again but it's interesting how much time he spends emphasizing i'm going to die and how little time he spends emphasizing uh i'm going to rise again and then Peter rebukes him yeah, and like I kind of said, you know, I don't think Peter's like saying this like out of like spite or anything or questioning um, God's plan, despite the fact that that is what he's doing. But I think that you know he, you know, pretty much just doesn't want to doesn't want to see um, Jesus die. Yeah, but it's also interesting how how Peter and how we today understand power, and we talked about this in our Instagram TV series. But it's not in our view of kingship, and it's not in Peter's either, for an, for uh, there to be a suffering servant who is the exalted king. So G- Peter's primary thought is of a kingly Messiah who rules. But here we have a king who is humbled, who goes through humiliation and death. And so Satan's way, the devil's way, is this is why he calls him Satan. It's, it's because a kingdom without a cross is the way of Satan. But Jesus's way is through the cross. And so think of Jesus's temptation. And you know, when he says to set his mind on the things of God here in verse 33, the things of God are that you are need, you are going to need to die to yourself and that we reign through the cross. And that's again, again, what he's about to tell people uh, to take up their cross and follow him in the, in the upcoming verses. And yeah. And and then lastly, before we uh, move into uh, taking your cross and following um, Jesus, which is of utmost importance as well in this chapter. But one thing that's very interesting is, um, as we talked about, you know, when we talked about uh, our episode on Genesis with uh, Mr. Snyder, we talked about, you know, God's way and man's way. Um, you know, reading this again just made me, really made me think, um, you know, it doesn't say God's way and Satan's way. It says God's way and man's way. And it just shows how aligned uh, humanity is with sin and um you know, we can see that we're more closely aligned in our sin um, with Satan, as Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, um, because he is focusing on the way of man and not on the plan and way um, of God. I thought that was really telling and really interesting to think about. Well, man, that's actually so interesting. I didn't think of that. But one thing that is really interesting is how Peter eventually gets this right. So Peter right now has this worldly view of power and kingship, but he eventually understands that that the worldly way is not how salvation works because what does he say eventually in his own epistle in first Peter one verses 18 and 19, he says, 
uh, you weren't saved by perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so he's saying you were saved by the blood of Christ. So he eventually knows that the path of life is through the cross where Jesus's blood was spilt. So it is uh, awesome that Peter, after seeing Jesus on the cross and after uh, the resurrection and after Pentecost, and when he writes his own letter, he understands that he's not saved by anything else but the blood spilt on the cross. For sure, man. And that's, and that's really good, especially um, we see here, you know, the teaching um, behind, you know, Peter's understanding later on. And that teaching is like also available to us, um, which is, you know, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to take up your cross and follow him. Um, and he talks a little bit about, you know, um, you know, not, um, you know, focusing so much like, like you had said, like, uh, like, building up our wealth here um, on earth, you know, building our wealth in heaven. Um, talks about like the importance of like um, of our souls. Um, it says starting in, in verse uh, 36, uh, what can a man profit to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul for what can a man give in return for his soul for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in his adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of the father uh, with the holy angels. And I think like this seems like very harsh, but it's like very direct and like very in a good way that we see clearly that, you know, the disciples really got the point. And then later on, it's evident that, you know, they, they see that um, the important thing here is to follow after Christ. And uh, that means choosing God's way, not man's way. Yeah. I, I think that's awesome. And that, it's interesting, though, that God's way would, again, seem like it is just the most powerful way, but God's way is the cross, and he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, and so it feels like, just like you were saying, the way that we would have the best life is to gain the world, to get everything possible, and he says that you're going to forfeit your soul. It doesn't matter. You're going to spend 70 to 80 years, Lord willing, at a good rate, uh, or at a, at a good length on earth, and then you're going to spend eternity um, with me or without me. And so I do think that that's, that's true. And just in conclusion, if you don't have anything else, I just think that uh, Bruner wrote an amazing commentary on the Gospel of John, and in a similar type of passage or conversation or discourse from Jesus, he says that Christians are called to take up this crosswalk. And I think that's incredible because our walk is cruciform. We're to walk in a manner uh, that reflects Jesus's crucifixion. So now we take up this crosswalk and we embody what Christ has done. That's really good, man. And I hope this conversation was fruitful for anyone who's listening and um, hope that, you know, we all take the time to consider um, whether we are, you know, thinking and um, living, you know, more with a, you know, the, the attitude of faith, as Jesus says, or more, you know, like the Pharisees who are questioning and, um, you know, demanding of, of, of Christ for signs. And um, yeah, so I hope uh, this was a good conversation for everyone and uh, see you guys next week.